listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I'm your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me is my co-host and co-DM, GM, storyteller, etc. McGill. Oh my god. Oh, jumped, jumped right the in gun. there. Oh my god. Jumped into the first pause. Should have waited for the second. You know something I uh, just realized? I didn't put the episode number on my notes for this dangus one. Dangus, Mangus, it's episode 107. Episode 107, and I got the second operation of my new campaign, Mercy Cicades. Do you know what cicades are, McGill? Well, I'm guessing they're not the noisy insect. No, cicadas? I had to look this up, and then I had to look it up again more recently to remind myself of the pronunciation, because it's spelled S-A-C-C-A-D-E-S. So it could be spelt cicades. It could be spelt S-A-C-C-A-D-E-S. Cicades. Cicades. It's not like a facade. It's not like a facade. There's no accent. I have no idea what uh, it a is. A cicade. So um, basically there are different types of movement that your eye can make. And like there is a there is like it's like the difference between like staccato in music is like uh, normally you have like a continuous eye movement, but a saccade is like a rapid eye movement to like quickly focus on something. So like you might if something catches your eye, like sort of at the peripheral of your view, you might do a saccade out of a sort of survival instinct to see what has suddenly entered your field of view. So like a darting glance is a saccade? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that it's even a voluntary thing, though. I think it's something that is like almost like a reaction. Okay. So Mercy Saccades is the operation I'm covering. Really, I mean, <clears throat> last time I did this huge intro for my new campaign and the first act of it and everything. And then what we covered in the actual operation, the first operation of Gold Pusher, that was like uh, pretty simple stuff. Like it, it, it was pretty easy to get through. And so um, similarly, this is like that, but without all the big preamble, because again, the players were just level one. Uh, you know, they were hitting the road. Uh, they, they got some, you know, some stuff happened. But not a whole lot to talk about this episode. So, um, I mean, all for the best because you have got, you know, you're talking, you'll be talking about your game for the first time in two episodes because I just did a finale and a premiere. And um, also, it's a new month, McGill. It's the 6th of May, 2022. Oh my God, that's right, it is. And I've, I've definitely got some things to talk about that I've enjoyed. Um, I don't know. What, what's, what's your status right now, McGill? My status, like... Like, are you thinking, oh, geez, I got so much to talk about, or what? No, I'm gonna... I'll keep my month in review brief. All right, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, um... I, I, I don't know what you've got going on, but I've had, uh... You know, for a while there, I was in a bit of a funk. I don't know, things weren't, like, you know, I think I mentioned last time we talked, it's like I'd been watching stuff and playing stuff, but nothing was really grabbing me. And uh, then it all turned around. I ran this, so first of all, I ran this 
session. It was like the big finale session to an arc that I'd been running uh, in Coyote's Aegis, actually, because I'm still running it uh, currently. But, um, you know, I tried to run that finale the first time, and Dangus, I got so overwhelmed. I, I was having anxiety, and I had a panic attack, and I just had to call the thing off. I was like, I don't think I can do this. I just didn't. And, uh, I mean, I, I had tried to do it, but it was, like, partway through that I realized that it was really getting away from me. And, uh, so in the end, I was just like, now nah, let's, let's do this next week. And, um, so I, I, I waited, you know, took it again, uh, the, the next time. But, uh, for that occasion, that's when things really started to come up Tom all of a sudden. I got, uh... You know, the 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 session went good. I was able to wrap that up to a big finale, and that was cool, which means I'm also starting the new phase of Coyote's Aegis in which uh, the guy who played Chessie, Spencer, is has rejoined, uh, which is good for me because for a while it was just me and my brother playing there. And uh, then also discovered, uh, with your help of reminding me, I saw a new show gangs of london right produced in association with cinemax my god you know i had actually because of its connection with cinemax i had been aware of the show when it was in development and it was one of those things warrior was very it, it was actually for a time i would get it mixed up with warrior because it was basically there were these two projects that sounded so good like one is gangs of london and it's by the guy who did the raid gareth evans who is welsh it's funny all these people are like wasn't that a foreign film and i'm like or, or people most often i find people are like wasn't that a korean film and i'm like actually it was indonesian the guy who made it isn't from there at all he's welsh he was just in indonesia making the movies so anyways, I remember like there was on the one hand, there was this uh, rumor of a Gareth Evans Gangs of London action show, and that was exciting. But then there was this other rumor about this Bruce Lee uh, script inspired uh, kung fu show that was going to be coming out. And, like, I think before I really knew anything about them, Warrior and Gangs of London, like didn't really conjure up much in my head apart from what I knew of their like sort of uh uh lineage. And so there was a time where I think I was like they were basically the same sort of thing in my head of like some cool ass show that I can't wait for that Cinemax says they're doing and like I just will see when it comes out. And Warrior came out and then uh Cinemax stopped doing original productions and i sort of you know that was a huge bummer for me because cinemax's involvement like the cinemax bumper is like a real seal of approval for me from banshee to the nick to quarry uh to warrior and but but i had very much forgot that gains of london was supposed to be on that thing i it had sort of been in the back of my head it's like wasn't there supposed to be a show from the guy who did the raid and like maybe i i think i had thought that maybe it wasn't produced after all or or whatever or the case uh it's it came out on sky it was released through sky studios but then i'm watching it and in the beginning it says 
produced in association with Cinemax. And um, I look on the Wikipedia and they're like, yeah, before Cinemax stopped their original productions, this was going to be one of them. And uh, man, as that that's exciting. That's like finding out your favorite band that broke up actually had another album out that you didn't know about. Or I guess it's more <laughs> like if they like did some sort of split with another band and you, you're like, oh my God, there's like a whole bunch new songs from that band that I never heard. Like, like it really is. It feels so much like a Cinemax show. Um, it's like the lost Cinemax show. Uh, it ended up over uh, across the pond. And you know, when I started talking about it, it then hit me that really my my good week when things started looking up started when we watched Stone Cold on your yeah. uh, online channel, Channel M, uh, which has recently been covered on Red Letter Media. Uh, but that is a real gem of a wacky ass film. Uh, very enjoyable. Um, oh my god, so much fun. It is just like a, a masterpiece of dumb macho bullshit. It, it's so funny. Yeah, it's um I I've been reframing it in my mind as like like if it was a D&D campaign, it's like if a barbarian is sent to infiltrate an orc tribe and um he basically <laughs> continues his infiltration based on his confidence that nothing has gone wrong so far. <laughs> and it all kind of catches up to him. Stone Cold just has some of the best dialogue. Like, it's just I thinking actually, about I, some of the lines makes me laugh so hard. I, I mentioned to you, but I used one of the lines from Lance Henriksen as the unhinged uh, leader of the evil biker gang, Chains, the villain Chains. of the film. Uh, he's crazy for death, and you know because he has clip done a clip of a guy saying death and watches it over and over again and laughs maniacally. But he, um, at one point, he tells the hero, uh, this is gonna be, he says he, the hero's either gonna be the biggest pork chop he ever ate or his bulldozer. And, uh, in my fight <laughs> with Gratz, who, uh, was, is a demon lord, he uses a lot of charm spells and dominate person and stuff, uh, he actually dominated Hexaquila in their confrontation, and he told Hexaquila that very thing. He made him into his bulldozer to hurt the party, and uh, also would demean him by calling him pork chop. Um, and so, like, uh, I—that's the thing, man. Uh, so many of the lines from Stone Cold. This will this will either be the biggest pork chop I ever ate or my bulldozer. I understand what he's saying, but I do not get the metaphor. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is, guy is, is the, I, bull, the bulldozer is a is the bulldozer the good thing or the bad thing? The so the, the bulldozer. <laughs> I, I, this is wild that we're explaining this on this podcast. I think, but I my reading is that the bulldozer is like if this guy is legit then he's going to be one of my best enforcers because he's huge. But also because he's huge, if I have to kill him, then it's basically going to be like eating a big piece of meat. See, it's the difference I... between something that I have use for and something that I just going to like throw away. That makes a lot of sense. But when I heard the line, I thought he was saying like, either this is going to be great, like a delicious <laughs> 
piece of meat or it's going to kill me like being run over by a bulldozer. <laughs> I mean, it's, I... The, it's the same sentiment, but it's such a weird metaphor that I'm like, what does a pork chop have to do with a bulldozer, man? Why They're, are these the two sides of the coin? Because you look at Boz, the Bosman, and he's a fucking uh, big, big. Basically, basically a, the only thing about him is that he's big. So bulldozers are big, and pork chops. Uh, the biggest pork chop I ever ate would be big too. <laughs> that's just it, right? Is like he could be a bulldozer in that this guy could like break through a wall. He's so huge. But he could be a pork chop in that he's a giant side of meat. So, and the biggest pork chop I ever ate, no less. That's the second biggest pork chop I ever ate. Um, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> getting kind of Monkey Island on that one. Yeah, that was that was what I was going for. But um, yeah, so I, like Stone Cold was great <laughs> and enjoyable. And then I ran my big uh, thing, and then I watched Gangs of London, um, which I had heard about here and there, but then, like, you reminded me of it. You were like, have you heard of this show? And I'm like, oh, fuck, right, I, I've got to watch that. And I looked it up, and I saw a YouTube clip that I watched about 30 seconds of and was like, god damn, I've got to watch this. And um, so then I found... I found my way to watching it, and uh, it's on AMC. Like you can watch it through AMC Plus uh, because of their like, like, like it's even says in the Wikipedia. It's like Gangs of London will continue, or 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 AMC picked up Gangs of London could continue with Cinemax's blessing or something, which like it all implies that there's like more sort of behind the scenes production stuff uh than one might uh assume that or that is then is obvious on the surface the other thing is that um given its production uh schedule um i know this has been true of second season but it came out in, in 2020 and i suspect that covid has also had a big uh effect on the production of the show mm. um so so I've watched some behind the scenes stuff and like uh basically it it is like you know Gangs of London it's a it's a crime film it's set in current present day London uh another wild thing is supposedly it is loosely based off a PSP game that is part of the the Getaway franchise uh I don't what? know if you know anything about that but um I, yeah. I only know the Getaway franchise by name, but I had no idea that this is loosely based on a game. It, like, Gangs of London is apparently a PSP installment of the Getaway franchise, and, like, in the Wikipedia page, it mentions it, basically. That's bizarre. But I do remember that, like, the Getaway had a whole angle of being, like, this sort of cinematic uh british crime story that was also like a, a need for speed or or like driver type um experience or or no right it was supposed to be because people called it a gta clone um so i guess it had more elements of that but, it, but anyways it's all kind of forgotten um the other thing is that gareth evans the big thing about him as i mentioned is that he made the raid uh the raid films and um it is like if you don't have a sense from watching his films of what his like auteur flair is, 
you 100% have it after watching those films and watching Gangs of London because everything that he loves is so... Like, the things that he does are so present throughout the show. Um, We had been talking about this, but uh, he loves to bend a person at a 90-degree angle. Uh, He loves when when one person is hiding behind a surface uh, for another person to drag a weapon along that surface. So if someone's hiding in a wall, then a person will drag a machete along that wall. If a person is in a bathroom stall, someone will hold a pistol to the door of the bathroom stall and sort of drag it around uh, menacingly. Um, he loves uh, he loves a torture scene where people are being brutalized one by one, and it's this constant thing of like, oh god, it's worse for the next guy. The classic example from the raid being uh, their shooting dudes but then uh the the bullet the gun runs out of bullets so the guy opens up the drawer and there's a bullets rattling around but then he finds a hammer in the drawer and you see that he goes to kill the last guy with the hammer instead of the gun um like they they do that scene quite a bit uh and yeah um there's just there's a lot of it that is familiar um but another thing is that since watching it i've also watched a bit of behind the scenes stuff and um it is really fascinating the way that gareth evans takes on his role as a showrunner for gangs of london because um you know one of the things with the raid uh that i think is simultaneously it like it's the reason people like it and i also think it's like the biggest uh or one of the problems i have with the film is like people love it for its simplicity similar to the first john wick movie um however especially having seen it more than once i find that the first raid film uh eventually starts to feel like the action movie equivalent of pornography uh specifically to uh, to quote myself it's basically just two people going at it in a room. A lot of scenes <laughs> just become that. Like it was it was I was watching it with my dad and there was a point where he was like kind of I could tell he was kind of like losing interest and he just sort of said like, "Yeah, you know, at a point it just sort of becomes like pornography." And I'm like, "Yeah, just a bunch of people in a room going at it." Um Go ahead. But uh so so Gangs of London, there is an awareness that with a TV show, you simply can't do that. You have to have narrative, a narrative drive to everything, like like good writing behind everything in order to keep everything engaging uh, over the period of time that the show is going to take. And of course, like as much as they load the show with action, you can't literally do an insane action set piece every episode. They try. Um, but there's just like certain budgetary constraints, I think. Uh, so having said that though, Gareth Evans as a showrunner, um, is extremely involved in the create, the creation of all the action set pieces and specifically in their choreography. Um, one thing they talk about is basically, you know, we're used to a certain level of pre-production in regards to writing and direction in film and TV. Uh, but 
Gangs of London for a TV show has an unprecedented amount. Like, I think maybe the only thing you can compare it to really is like Warrior, um, where there is so much pre-production regarding the actual action of the film, specifically in terms of choreography, where they basically have this space. It's it's like a gymnasium where they just have like big generic shapes that a person can be like slammed against and bent against and thrown around. <laughs> um, like they just have this like sort of uh, action mind palace that is like before they even do the episode, all they, they, they get into the room and they're like, all right, this guy could do this move. And then this guy could do this. Oh, and if you have a thing like this, maybe he does this to this guy. And like, they come up with all these crazy, just like visceral moments. And then that is also like part of the production of the show. It's like, there's the writing, there's the direction, but there's also the choreography. Also Gareth Evans does like laptop editing on the fly while they're shooting the scenes. Like they'll do, like they'll shoot uh, a guy like the example in the behind the scenes is like a guy like sort of uh, come c- pops up over the hood of a truck and takes a shotgun shot. And it shows Gareth Evans like going through the different shots with him doing the different shots and then sitting like alongside him and just editing it, those shots on his computer and being like, all right, next one. So that there's no, the the way they put it is like there's no twiddling your thumbs on set like there's no question of how are we going to make this work we have to make it work in the moment or it's not useful to us um and that's really cool yeah that's a really cool way of doing it it's it's a really fascinating um like like more than anything i think i just want this show to do well i want it to do well because it is like a great installment in what I feel Cinemax started to create with their original programming. And I'm really hoping that like shows like warrior can carry on that legacy. But you know, there's, it's just like, to my mind, Banshee was not as, as successful as I feel like it should have been, or as I would have liked to it to have been like, if I feel like if it had made more of a cultural splash, we would see more of this type of like really high octane show because this is the real thing is it's like, it requires the same, um, the same insane budget of like a prestige drama, like Westworld or game of Thrones, but it needs to commit to using that budget in a certain way that I think a lot of TV producers and executives don't necessarily want to invest in. And we've had these few exceptions where the, like the explicit idea is like we're gonna do that we're gonna do like banshee and warrior and uh gangs of london it's like we are going to make an action show where the action is on par with like a movie um like like we want to do hollywood action basically uh in an episodic format and um i am just like i i'm so all for it basically i'm like yes more of this, please. More, more of this, and less of like may- maybe not less prestige drama, but like more of this alongside it. You know, um, 
you know, I all there there was talk once about them doing a John Wick series that was about the Continental, and like I don't know if they ever picked up on that idea, but that would be like a real contender to go in this like sort of legacy of uh, high high budget like prestige action shows. Um, I think the Continental might still be happening. Uh, I haven't heard any word of its cancellation anyway. This is the thing is that like when I hear about these things, it's always kind of like pre pre production sort of thing. It's like somebody said it would be a great idea, and someone said, "Yeah, that would be." And it's like, well, until I see it, I don't know. <laughs> like, there is certainly a lot of clickbaity articles where the interviewer will be like, you know, uh, "Hey, uh, Ernie Hudson, would you want to appear in Ghostbusters?" five and he's like sure i'd appear in any ghostbusters movie and then the headline is ernie hudson wants to do another ghostbusters movie it's a bunch of nonsense um one thing i will say about gangs of london is that as i i mentioned about the whole thing of like they try to do a huge action set piece every episode i feel like and again this might be a covid thing but and obviously like so Another thing is that I know that season two production, which season two is supposed to come out this year. And like, if it does, I will be just blissfully happy because I, I am, I am jonesing for more. Like I finished that season in like two nights and then was immediately just like, God, I want some more of that. I need some more of that. Um, But supposedly the new season is going to come out this year. Um, but it did have issues because of COVID. Somebody in the crew uh, did test positive for COVID. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, since part of the production design is literally to like have a bunch of dudes in a room, like just throwing each other around and stuff, I can see how COVID would really cause a problem for this production. Um, but also just like in terms of the first season, I feel like, like the first five episodes and very clearly episode five, like episode five is just one. It's practically just one gigantic action set piece. Um, And the first five episodes all have some definite, like uh highlight action moment. That's like, you can tell that it's by the guy who did the raid and like, you really, Everything has something that's like, whoa, that was crazy. But after episode five, they are unable to keep that. They're unable to sustain that level of intensity. And what's funny to me is that I've talked about with this with some people and I'm like, really, the level of intensity it drops to is still on par with like Warrior, basically. It's just that they set the intensity so high that you're basically expecting something like a crazy action set piece every episode and when episodes start not having those um it's a bit of a letdown or 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 it's a bit deflating and um the, the so the biggest thing though that i have to say is that the second last episode ends with a big big event and it's something where it's like you could basically do it all with special effects. Like it's not something where it actually necessarily would have taken a huge budget because there isn't a lot of 
choreography involved. It's just like one big event happens, but it's something that like in the plot line of the show, you're like, oh shit, it's all going down now. That the finale of this season is going to be nothing but crazy action battle aftermath of this crazy event. And it just doesn't deliver on that. And like the wildest thing is that there are even shots in that finale that are straight out of the raid. Like there's a shot of dudes in the back of like a SWAT truck masking up and checking their guns and stuff. And I was like, oh man, we're literally doing the raid and there's no raid. There's no raid. It's wild. (laughs) It's, it's so wild that like, and so like, it's, it's sad that I love this show so much, but I really have to say that the ending is kind of weak. Um, and part of that is that sense of like not being able to maintain the like volume of the first half of the show. And I think, again, I think there may be a number of possible reasons for that. But the other thing is that, um, I feel, I feel that the finale kind of pulls certain punches, uh, in the hopes that they will get a second season, um, which is irritating. It's like, you know, there's that sense of like that idea of like, Oh, it's all on now. And then it's not. And it's like, maybe it's not because they want to keep like characters in play and stuff. And they want to keep things going, but it just feels very non-committal. You know, it's, Mm. it's one of these things where it's like a lot of things get sort of thrown up in the air and it's like, well, you'll have to wait till season two to see how they land. And it's like, well, that's a lot of trust for me to put into a show that's like brand new. I should say also like this, a lot of the show, I was sort of watching it as like this unknown quantity of like, do I like it has to earn my trust. And there were certain things where like one thing I mentioned how Gareth Evans likes to do these menacing uh like torture sequences and whatnot and the show is so violent that a lot of the time i was sort of weighing it as like well this is good but i could easily see you crossing a line here that would make the show really unpleasant and Hmm. a lot of times um they come close but don't follow through like uh my my big example so i like to compare it to dread which is, I think, the perfect example of a movie that, like, there's the threat of sexual violence against Anderson is very real and very, like, like you feel that threat terribly, but they never follow through with it. You believe it, but you never, they never, just, like, shove your face into that nastiness in their fiction. And... Um, gangs of London, similarly, like there's a part where they hired this guy who just, they literally just made him look as much like a stereotypical, like creepy pedophile as possible. He's got like these (laughs) glasses and a beard and a hat and shit. And he's just, um, and, and it's like, they've hired this guy to specifically kidnap this one gang leaders, like, uh, sister and nieces. And it's like, God, do not if you make me watch this guy do something fucked up to the nieces, I'm, I'm, this show's going to lose a lot of points with me, but like they know exactly when to draw that line. Like they know nothing happens to the nieces and like 
you know, generally they're good at that. The problem is, and it's funny because Stone Cold is relevant to this. Stone Cold, like, I, I said a bunch of things about Stone Cold. Like, um, when we were watching it, I said the bikers from Stone Cold are like every band of raiders, every orc, tr like, barbarian orc tribe. Like, if I, anytime that I run a campaign now and I have that element in it, I'm going to depict it as the bikers from Stone Cold. It's like that <laughs> iconic. They get it that perfectly. Like, there's nothing more orc than shooting beer bottles off of each other and then pulling out a fully automatic weapon and shooting a beer bottle off of your friend with that. And then the other friend not even reacting angrily to that but just sort of diving out of the way and then a car like a husk of a car being behind him and exploding and then just everybody being like yeah like no no issues with the fact that someone literally opened fire with a submachine gun on them or just having like an open fighting arena going on at all times where your members can get in and just brutally beat each other to a pulp for no particular reason, like just for fun. Um. So yeah, and so that is like iconic for me. However, also iconic for me is what I now refer to as the Stone Cold Threshold. Um. I don't know if I told you about this. Do I? Did I tell you about this? So I talked about this when we were watching it. Is the fact that there is like my box quote for the film was basically. It's the action movie equivalent of watching someone choose double or nothing and get nothing because midway through the film, John Stone's like handler gives him an out. He says the bikers have just murdered two national guards. It's, we can easily book them for this. We don't need to do this sting anymore. You don't need to be undercover anymore. We can pull you out and we can get them for something else. And like I said, the barbarian hero insists on the confidence that nothing has gone wrong so far that they should go through with his sting anyways, even though it is not necessary. And that <laughs> insistence to go through with the sting leads to the bad guys getting everything they want, basically. Like, if he backed out then, he would not be culpable for them getting the huge drug shipment that then funds their attack on the Capitol, that then allows them to kill the governor and the entire Supreme Court of Mississippi. Like, literally, he has a scene before everything starts going downhill where it's like, you haven't done anything wrong yet, and you could quit while you're ahead. And he's like, no. <laughs> and the rest of the movie is just nope the like that's the stone cold threshold it's it's when an undercover cop it says this specific like trope of like there's an undercover cop who has infiltrated a criminal organization and then he is given the chance to leave when there is like when he is not responsible for anything completely unconscionable yet and yet insists on staying in because of the importance of their job is almost always like it all it always comes across as a pride thing of like they've invested so much in this job that they aren't willing to just quit fucking it's the sunk cost fallacy the un, the undercover cop hero in gangs of london 
has passed the stone cold threshold. There was a point in the show where he was able to get out and he said no. And now a person has died a horrible death because of him. And it's very hard. Stay in. It's very hard to root for that guy now that he's fucked up that badly. But Tom, Um, he's come too far. He can't give up now. And it's funny because I it also gets me talking a lot about the idea. I've talked about this before uh, uh, in regards to Banshee and Warrior, but the idea of like melodrama and how people tend to associate melodrama with like soap opera pretension. But like Warrior and Banshee and everything belongs to this other category of like action melodrama where the melodramatic like the pretension is that everything is going to be dialed to 11. Every reaction, like every emotion is heightened no matter what it is. Yeah, exactly. Everybody is going to have to have the most extreme reaction to every revelation. Um, Everyone, everyone's love interest is going to be the most problematic love interest they could possibly have. So like every hero will be sleeping with the villain's wife. Um, Like they're like, that's just, the rules of like warrior and banshee and stuff and these rules um like on the one hand they provide that sense of like knowing when to draw the line and stuff it's like you don't you don't kill the dog or the kid and whatnot but also they provide like this narrative framework when it's like what i love about warrior is when something crazy happens to the plot it's like just before it happens, you realize that it's going to happen. Is you're like, oh shit, that guy set up this guy because he's working with this guy. And it's like that all the seeds have been planted through this sort of like dance of this of this melodrama with all the different like characters and the different narrative pieces falling into place. Um and I find that Gangs of London also like is really is a really good example of this melodrama and it deals with certain issues that this kind of story has. Like, um, you know, when you're dealing with a whole bunch of gangsters and criminals, it's very easy to fall into the trap of like, well, no one here is actually likable. Everybody here is kind of a piece of shit that I want to see get their comeuppance. And warrior deals with this very well by taking it on from a cultural angle is you have a lot of characters that are forced into situations because of just like either racism or misogyny or both things like that. Um, With gangs of London, it's like there are the gangsters who are just fully in the crime life, but then all of them have inexplicably huge families. It's like they have no idea what can be used against them in this world. And so, um, you know, you often have like, like the, character who's played by joe cole the guy from peaky blinders he has like a brother who is uh an ex-heroin addict and it's like you know if everything bad that happens to joe cole i'm like well he's a gangster he had it coming but his brother is i mean he's had a shitty abusive father he's been raised in this life of crime it's kind of understandable that he would turn to drug abuse and so like i want him to get out you know it's like he provides a sort of like heart to the show that i'm like oh geez don't hurt him you know 
But anyways, all, all this just to say that, like, I think that, um, like, I, I think that Gangs of London, it's so interesting because it's like, it's a first season of a show by a guy who hasn't done a show before. Like, again, it's a very unknown sort of quantity. Um, and so there are a lot of things that I think it's commendable for, but at the same time, it's like once it passed the stone cold threshold, I was like, ah, could have done that better guys. You could have, uh, you could have nailed the melodrama a little bit better there. You could have thought that event through a little bit more. Um, because in the larger framework, it just like, it stands out as a glaring issue the way that having the woman in Stone Cold randomly get killed also seems like a glaring issue in the plot. Yeah. She didn't that's serve the a other lot of thing, purpose anyway, that, though. <laughs> that's the other thing, is that Stone Cold, like, kind of, because of what it is, you can enjoy it on the level that it's kind of absurd and funny, whereas once you get to the end of Gangs of London, you're so invested that seeing the main character screw up in the stone cold way is kind of like, it, it takes you out of it a bit. Good to know. I'll keep it in mind as I watch. So I just talked a whole bunch. So McGill, why don't you get to your thing and then go right into the verse? All right. So, um, what did I get up to in April? Uh, there are just three quick things I want to talk about. First, I'll talk about a video game. You know, I'm doing my my binge of sort of shorter video games, video games that don't take forever to complete. Uh, I had played a whole lot of bite-sized ones uh, in March. Oh, man, then... I didn't even talk about it. I've been playing Pathfinder Kingmaker, but maybe I should talk about that next month when I'll have finished it, hopefully. Ah, um... The big new game that I played since last time was Inscription. I played Inscription end-to-end. I know a lot of people love this game, and I thought it was a really good one. Um, it's just there's one flaw, though, Tom. Uh, I, guess, I guess I'll say, like, mild spoilers for Inscription here. I'm going to talk about things like game mechanics. I'm not going to get into specifics. Um, so for starters... Uh, I had previously talked about There Is No Game Wrong Dimension. I did not expect Inscription to actually be a lot like There Is No Game Wrong Dimension. Uh, Inscription is divided into sort of three acts of the game. And uh, the first act is like what you see in the trailers, uh, where it's this like first-person perspective. You're in a creepy cabin and you're playing this roguelike card game against someone who's sort of lurking in the shadows. You can only see his eyes. Uh, and then the second act, after you complete the first act, it switches gears and the second act uh, becomes, it's still based around uh, the card game mechanic, but it is, uh, it's more like Pokemon. Like it's, it's got, it, it gets a, a different, uh, user interface, a different game style, and rather than just playing the roguelike card game, you are also navigating like a world map and collecting cards to build your deck. And then Act 3 switches back to the style of Act 1. And the thing is, I really love the style of Act 1, and so Act 3 was also good, but Act 2 
I thought Act 2 was kind of a step down. It was like a bit of a step backwards for the game. This is basically what I've heard from everyone about this game is like, I really like the first part and then it changes. And I guess that's cool. But I I like the first part better than the second part. I didn't realize that the last part is the same, which is good because everybody seems to like the first part best. Yeah, it it does loop back to what I liked about it. And the everybody liking Act 1 the most, uh, it was such a thing that the new game plus that you can play, like after you complete the game, you can just start a new game fresh from the beginning and like go through all three acts. But they also have an option to play an endless version of Act 1 where they've added more cards, they've added more challenges... And you can just sort of play it for infinity. Uh, it never. I think people ends. have even made an endless version of the of Act One on uh, Tabletop Simulator. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, it would it would actually be pretty perfect for Tabletop Simulator because it is presented as a tabletop game. Um, so Inscription really liked it. Like everyone, I think Act Two is a bit of a stumbling block, but I compared it to. There is no game wrong dimension, and I don't, like, maybe it's just because I played them in close succession, or maybe because people haven't played a lot of uh, There Is No Game, but I feel like I'm the only person drawing this connection, but it is a really clear one, because in There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension, uh, the game interface changes from act to act. Uh, One act is a top-down RPG, it looks basically the same as uh, the second act of Inscription, and both games have this found-footage meta-narrative going on where, like, actual video of real people uh, will pop up and give you clues as to the grander story of the game you're playing. So I, I I was really struck by all these similarities between Inscription and There Is No Game. Uh, I'd say, like, if you liked Inscription, but you don't like playing cards, There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension is kind of perfect, because it, There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension has all the stuff from Inscription minus the card game and those mechanics at the center of it. But it still has that channel surfing through different styles kind of quality, and it has a, a found footage meta narrative mystery about the nature of the game itself. Just a, an unusual connection there that I haven't seen made anywhere else. And then, uh, in addition to Stone Cold, which I freaking loved, uh, I watched a couple of new movies. Uh, the first one I'll talk about is I saw The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent which is the movie where Nicolas Cage plays himself and he has been invited to the party of uh, a character played by Pedro Pascal, who is like this weird kind of millionaire kingpin guy and Cage, and he's also a huge Nicolas Cage fan. And so Cage as himself is invited to this birthday party to be like part of the entertainment. But turns out the guy throwing the party has a uh, gun running operation and so the FBI contacts Nicolas Cage to make him like an undercover agent to infiltrate this birthday party and uh, I love Nicolas Cage big Nicolas Cage fan Uh, I just 
don't get me started on all the ways in which I, I dig Nicolas Cage's work. So naturally, I was intrigued by the unbearable weight of massive talent, but I suspected correctly uh, as to what the movie would wind up being like. Did you ever see the Bruce Campbell movie, My Name is Bruce? No. So Bruce Campbell made this movie, My Name is Bruce, where he plays a caricature of himself and he goes to like a small town for a convention and there is a monster. And so he has to fight the monster. It's like Bruce Campbell has to sort of embody the characters he plays in his movies. And uh, it's the same kind of shtick with massive talent where Cage is playing like a caricature of himself and he's sort of thrust into this situation where like he actually has to be a secret agent and all that. And the problem with both Massive Talent and My Name is Bruce is that the plot part is half-baked. Like when it's Nicolas Cage, uh, the FBI is trying to get him to, you know, be a secret agent. That's okay. Like there are a couple of laughs, but it really just did not feel... It felt like uh, it was only there to give the story a direction to head in. But when Massive Talent is just Nicolas Cage hanging out with Pedro Pascal and the two of them are like geeking out about Nicolas Cage movies and, you know, dropping acid and going cliff jumping and things like that, that stuff is really funny. They have great chemistry together. Pedro Pascal, like... I mean, I think he's a good actor, but uh, he really comes off as a genuine Nicolas Cage fan. Like, every time he's geeking out over Nicolas Cage, it re maybe it's just an act, but I really felt like he is a huge Nick Cage fan and just having a great time being there with Cage working on this thing. And likewise, Cage seems all too happy to, you know, go off the chain and, and get crazy. And uh, there are a few weird like oddball touches uh, that I won't spoil they're not in the trailers there's some like weird things uh, that come up like cage hallucinates stuff sometimes and uh, and that stuff was great but oh, I like bad more. lieutenant he hallucinates stuff like in bad lieutenant I got a poster for that movie right up on my right up on my wall yeah, he kind of does the bad lieutenant thing. Uh, weird hallucinations, though. When they happen, they are hilarious, but they don't happen enough. So that's like another sort of knock against the movie. But I don't know. If you are going into this just to watch Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal goof around together, you won't be disappointed. If you go in looking for like a masterpiece of Nicolas Cage's filmography and uh, something with like a really cool plot, nah, you're probably not going to get that. But overall, I thought it was a fine time. I give it like a middle, a middling review, like maybe, you know, six out of ten, something like that. It's not amazing, but it was pretty good. But you know what was amazing, Tom, is the other movie I saw, which was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, and, yeah, uh, I've been interested in this one. So this is direct, written and directed by Daniels, the directors who made Swiss Army Man, which... Another that's another movie that I just absolutely love. Super weird, you know, gross and yet sort of touching and inspiring. Great stuff. And uh, 
everything everywhere all at once still has that same kind of weird energy and they still like to get gross and they the directors are still uh, as indicated by swiss army man they are still obsessed with things like you know poop and butts and dicks and stuff uh, anatomy and bodily functions but it's packaged in a way that I like. I can see why it is such a big hit. Swiss Army Man was pretty polarizing when it came out. It was sort of like the people who saw it loved it, but the idea of a movie about Daniel Radcliffe's farting corpse guiding Paul Dano around with its boner, I can see why audiences didn't really flock to something quite that strange. Famously with Swiss Army Man, there were like walkouts at film festivals because the critics were just like too disgusted by what they were seeing so everything everywhere all at once takes all I think of those it's things. also understandable on the level of like you watch it for a bit and it's like man this is dumb <laughs> like, i disagree though i think I, it is i think it's amazing i'm not i'm not saying that the film is dumb i'm just saying it would be easy if you're like a critic at a festival with a full like slate you suddenly see this film and like honestly it's very slow to even get started and so like it'd be you could easily get 15 minutes in and be like you know what i'm all right well it's it, it is funny with swiss army man because it's like the first five minutes is paul dano trying to kill himself and then the next 10 minutes is him riding Daniel Radcliffe's farting corpse like a jet ski. It's <laughs> like, really bizarre. I, I could definitely see a critic at a festival being like, the hell is this? Uh, I got to go cover like one of the big tentpole movies here. Yeah, exactly. Time. That's what I'm thinking is like, look, I, I got to fucking watch a Darren, o- Darren Aronofsky movie. after this shit. I, I can't. I got no time for this. <laughs> but uh, everything everywhere all at once takes that same energy a lot of those same sort of ideas and uh, you know director hallmarks as you said about uh, Gareth Evans and the raid it's like you very quickly realize what interests the Daniels uh, but it takes all that stuff and just packages it in a way that's a bit more palatable for mainstream audiences it makes me really happy that uh, this is doing extremely well in theaters because it is it is very original. Obviously, it has some, it plays with some ideas that we've seen before. Uh, initially, w- it, during the first hour, I was like, this is kind of like, uh, you know, if somebody who loved Rick and Morty was daydreaming about The Matrix, but not in a bad way. Like, I, think I know about that- Sense8 a lot for that one as well. Yeah, there's some, there's some Sense8 in there. But then it just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder. Like, this is a weirder movie than The Matrix, man. Uh, What if, like, imagine this. What if you could plug into The Matrix, but in order to do that, instead of, like, finding a payphone or stepping through a mirror, you had to give yourself paper cuts between all your fingers. Yikes. (laughs) Or you had to shove a butt plug up your butt. (laughs) That's how you'd plug into The Matrix. Um, no, what this reminds me of is Cronenberg uh, and like Existence and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is definitely some body horror stuff in there. Oh man! Uh, speaking of, I'm so ready for that new Cronenberg body horror. Crimes of the Future. Yeah, that looks uh, that looks pretty terrific too. But uh, yeah, rather than like go in deep and and spoil uh, risk spoiling anything, I will say that impossibly. Everything Everywhere All at Once lives up to its title. 
Like <laughs> that movie has everything. Here's here is an example. And this the, uh, again, I'll say a mild spoiler, but what I'm about to describe takes place within a span of five minutes. A woman who is the villain, the villain of, of this movie is this woman. Uh, she appears, she gets off an elevator and she is wearing an Elvis costume and she has a pig on a leash and some security guards come to try to detain her and she uses her multiverse magic powers to change one of their uniforms into like a Samba costume with like a fruit headdress like Carmen Miranda. And then she turns the other guards like baton into a big dildo and beats him to death with it. <laughs> it's just like it, moment to moment, crazy stuff happens Sounds out of like nowhere. This villain is the mask. The villain is a lot like the mask, actually. Like she can she can summon things and change things. She, the The idea behind her is that she has access to every alternate version of herself across the multiverses, and she can draw upon any version of herself to gain powers. So, like in one you know timeline, she's a, a crazy martial arts hero, so she knows martial arts. In another timeline, she's a golf star, so she knows golf professionally. Uh, that's sort of the idea, and you know, again, it's sort of a matrixy thing where it's like. You can, if you have access to all the different timelines of the multiverse, then you have access to infinite knowledge. So instead of Tank loading up the Kung Fu program, and you know, I know Kung Fu, instead you have to access whatever timeline it is through some weird thing like giving yourself paper cuts. And then you do that, and then you have the knowledge of that, that alternate version of yourself, and you can do Kung Fu. It's it's crazy, man. It's totally out there, but uh, I just the paper cut thing really it. reminds me of like Total Recall, the whole nose ball thing and everything. But it, the paper cut one I use because it's a kind of a extreme example, and it really made me cringe anytime I see someone getting a paper cut like in a movie. I, mean, I remember like, oh. when I was a kid, that was my least favorite part of Total Recall was when he fucking pulled the th thing yeah. out of his nose. But there, it, they, the triggers to skip between multiverses or universes, it's called verse jumping. The triggers for the verse jumping, it's all different. It's different every time. Every universe you want to access has like a different... got a perfect segue set up here. Yeah, uh, it has a different uh, trigger to access it. So like another good example is... Uh, Kei Hu Kwan, who played Data in The Goonies and Short Round in Indiana Jones, he's back. He's the male lead in this movie, and he's still great. So much fun. Um, he wants to access a version of himself that is really agile to get away from an enemy. And the trigger for that is to go to the nearest office desk, pull a dried wad of gum off the bottom, and start chewing it. So, it's, you know, chew the gum that's on the bottom of that desk, you get superpowers. Or eat a well, whole tube I'm of chapstick. Well, I'm about to do the thing. <laughs> well, and uh, if you uh, end uh, talking about that movie uh, at almost exactly 60 minutes in your podcast, then that's how you jump, you verse jump, jump to the verse. Damn straight. Uh, and hey, we're back in the verse. And uh, so... Where we left off a few episodes ago, the players had been duped 
by Saffron. She stole their ship and left them to die on this like shipwreck, space shipwreck out way out in deep space. And uh, rescue came in the form of a reaver ship that showed up using a personal assistant slash security android that they had reactivated. They managed to commandeer, take out all the reavers, commandeer the reaver ship, and try to make their escape. But the reaver ship doesn't have much in the way of supplies, not a lot of food or water on there, mainly just fuel and, like, viscera. And so the crew, as they are flying away, uh, trying to figure out how they can get back to the core, get somewhere where they can get some supplies, you know, get back to civilization without starving. As they're looking around, they spot a planet that isn't on their star charts. It shouldn't be there. It's a planet called Jigong that, uh, well, I'll give the backstory to Jigong in just a second, but ultimately they decide, hey, hey We already covered it last episode, or not last episode, but the previous episode when we talked about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do like a one-sentence recap just to reestablish what's going on there. But the players decide, okay, there's a place where we can touch down and uh, maybe find some food and supplies before carrying on. The only problem is Jigong, uh, it was a, a moon of one of the planets closer to the core where a big battle in the Unification War took place. And all of the bombing on this moon made it nearly inhabitable. So the planet was evacuated and the bombing also knocked the moon out of its orbit. So it's been drifting out of the, the core to the outer rim of the verse, just sort of like it doesn't have an orbit anymore. It's drifting away and it got caught in a gravity well from a black hole. So this is a dying planet that is about to be sucked into a black hole and disappear into oblivion. And, but the players don't know that right away. So they try to touch down to restock their supplies, and the first thing that happens is they hit crazy gravitational tur turbulence because of the black hole's, you know, suction and attraction. And uh, Caesar, who was piloting, didn't like totally fail the pilot skill challenge that I posed to her, but she didn't do great. And so it was a rough landing and they broke pieces of the ship and it's going to need repairs before it can take off. And that's sort of where we left off the last time. And uh, it's, it's interesting because there is a, a since I ran this campaign and it, just even in the last year, there is a prime example of exactly what I was aiming for with this session that has come out, and that is the TV show Yellow Jackets, right? Yellow Jackets about this all-girl soccer team. Man, that, that is not where I thought this was going. Oh, really? Where did you think it was going? Uh, I thought you were going to talk about something, some kind of sci-fi thing or something. I don't know. There, there are other uh, influences um, another good example is the first season of Lost. Um, but I basically wanted to do an adventure where it was like one part stranded. They're, they've crashed in the wilderness and they're going to have to work both to survive and to find a way out of the wilderness. In this case, it's going to be repairing their ship. 
but with what supplies, right? Yeah, and I then thought the this other... was going to be something about you were going to make a reference to something that had like a dead planet in it or something. Well, no, because while this planet has been evacuated, there are, in fact, a handful of settlers that stay behind. They opted to bring all that they owned into a network of caves under the planet's surface and survived there for years as the war went on. And then they only emerged from the caves when the frequent earthquakes started last cycle. You know, and this is really weird. I was trying to, like, I was, like, picturing something for this planet of, like, this dead planet with these weird people living on it. And, I like, I feel like there's a more solid image of, like, some dead planet that has people, like, secretly living on it. But then, for some reason, the thing that's popped into my head is, do you know Burnt Face Man? Burnt Face Man? Uh, Burnt, f- Burnt no. Face Man is a series of web cartoons by the guy who did Salad Fingers, uh, David Firth. Okay. Um, I find them a lot funnier and better than Salad. Like, I think they're generally hysterical. Uh, it has a lot of quotes that I like to use. Like, you there, are you a crime in all? A criminal? <laughs> yes, I am a crime in all. A criminal. Um, but... There's there's like one of the episodes ends with something about like next time bastard man attempts to steal all the Earth's air and sell it to a planet full of shifty characters. And for some reason, I'm imagining the planet of shifty characters. (laughs) They're just like a bunch of people in like cloaks coming out of caves and they're on like a creepy dark planet. And they're like, we probably won't pay you for this because we are rather shifty. (laughs) <laughs> well, there are these shifty characters on Jigong, but uh, I'm trying to think because there's... I guess a... it also reminds me of, like, Riddick, you know? Because Riddick's yeah. from that planet where they're underground and stuff. Yeah, there's a bit of Riddick. There's a bit a bit of, like, Mad Max beyond Thunderdome where he, he encounters the tribe of feral children who uh, they were in a plane crash and then the pilot left them uh, apparently to seek help, but he never returned. Again, like the, but you you get the idea I'm going for. I want to do uh, I wanted to do sort of like a Lord of the Flies thing where they fall in with this sort of tribal group of survivalists, and they have to make some tough decisions. This is where I really wanted to force the players to like you know maybe be selfish, figure figure out a way to get off the planet, but at the same time, limit their uh, their options. I didn't want them to be able to save everybody. And so uh, the terrain of this planet is like this vast treeless area of low swampy plains. There are mountains on the horizon. Um, and the cave dwellers, as soon as the, the ship crashes... Uh, the cave dwellers are well aware of it, and they sneak out to surround the crash site. And uh, I found uh, a cool image of, like, sort of a swamp ghillie suit, uh, like, designed specifically for sort of swampy areas. And I have it be that the the warriors of the tribe all wear those and just blend into the scenery perfectly. And then as soon as the players get off the ship, they are ambushed the... You know, these these tribesmen have them at spear point and take them as prisoners and lead them to their colony in the cave network. 
And the setup is this. There are, I did, this is another case where I didn't want it to be a huge number of people. Uh, again, like Yellow Jackets and Lost are sort of perfect staples of what I'm going for. You know what I think I was actually thinking of? What? Was uh, back in Mines of Metal and Wheels when they went to the moon. They found yeah, that guy. Well, yeah, the, the moon is in Mines of Metal and Wheels is sort of, uh, there, there are definitely bits of that. Certainly like the underground cave systems, the stranded astronaut. But uh, in this case, it's almost like uh, it's almost like the like the Roanoke colony or something like like people who have been left behind and don't even necessarily know that they're doomed. And uh, I didn't want to make it a huge group of survivors either. Uh, I have it be 20 people. But again, I wanted to set it up so that like 20 people is too many for them to save. So they get taken prisoner and led before sort of the leaders of the tribe. Uh, around this point, I was playing a lot of uh, the King of Dragon Pass. And uh, King of Dragon Pass, that game has like the tribal council with your different advisors who all give you advice on making hard decisions about the tribe. And so I wanted to like evoke that, this council of, of tribes people who, uh, who make the decisions, the players are brought before them. And uh, the players sort of explain the situation, but even even the crew of uh, the kennel don't know the the full sort of uh, impact of what's about to happen to this planet. They don't really know that the planet is about to be completely destroyed. They just know that something has gone wrong. It's where it shouldn't be, and it seems to be drifting out into deep space. And so they like explain their backstory. They explain how they came to be here. Their ship is broken uh, and they need supplies for repairs. But obviously this tribe of people, they just don't have anything. They barely have food. Uh, it's they're they're effectively they're dying. It's one of those situations where I'm trying to remember what movie I'm thinking of. But there's definitely like uh, a movie where some people fall in with a tribe and then like one of the characters pulls another one aside and says, like, these people are dying. And uh, same sort of idea here. I keep thinking of Star Trek episodes. Yeah, Star Trek episodes. Definitely uh, another another sort of this style of thing. In fact, this is actually the uh, the moral quandaries that I put the players in in this one are very Star Trek-y now that I think about it. But uh, so here's the basic plot. It, actually, I've got it. You know what this is? It's kind of like it's kind of like Star Trek Insurrection in a way. That's why I was wondering if I was literally just thinking is like, do they sort of like that literally had just popped into my head? Yeah, uh, that one wasn't an intentional thing, but it's definitely it's that sort of uh, of plot that I was going for, especially because um, there is like a second in command character, uh, a man named Swan, who I based off of uh, Michael Beck from the Warriors, whose character is named Swan. So I just I used a picture of Michael Beck. And uh, so he's got like this antagonistic relationship towards the players. He thinks that they're lying They're You know, maybe these are actually alliance agents and they're just trying to save their skin by saying that, you know, our people are doomed or our planet is out of orbit. This could all be a trick. I don't trust them. And then also similar to insurrection. This whole system's out of orbit. <laughs> also similar to uh, insurrection is one of the younger people in the tribe in this case 
a teenage girl, uh, she tells the players that there is another shipwreck within like a day's walk, a day's hike of the settlement. We're out of orbit. You're out of orbit. Sorry. So the bulk of this session was the players just sort of navigating being in this tribe. I did a lot of like sort of mini game quests where like they help the tribe on a hunt or they help the tribe, you know, repair some piece of equipment they have. They help the tribe uh, put together a water filtration system. And I ran each of these things as sort of like sidetrack mini quest, mini game, skill challenges. And somewhere in there, uh, that's sort of how I seed in this idea like, hey, there's another ship that you guys could salvage and probably use the parts to fix up yours. But of course, if the tribe knew about this, they wouldn't allow the players to do that because what the tribe would really like to do is scrap the player's ship and fix the other ship and try to get off the planet that way, but leave the players behind, save their own skins. But it's never gonna work because the other ship, which is a bigger ship, is just too far gone. It's been a wreck for too long. There's no hope of actually fixing it entirely. However, there is hope of fixing the reaver ship that the players came in using those parts. But as you know, as usual, there's a catch though. The reaver ship still doesn't have enough like air, enough supplies to take the whole colony away, or even enough room to take the whole colony away. And so putting all of these pieces in place, uh, I, I kind of channel, you know, I have the, the, the players develop relationships with different people within the tribe and take part in some customs and activities with them. They find in secret, uh, with the help of this young girl, the other wreck. And then once all of those things are in place, I did the thing that I do where I just sort of sat back and I let the players figure it out. What are you guys going to do? And so there was, there was a lot of debate. Do we try to save all these people? Uh, and uh, another, another point that I would raise, I'd always use uh, Danil as a way of playing devil's advocate. So the players would come up with an idea where they're like, okay, well, if we can't take all of them, it wouldn't be fair to take any of them. So let's, you know, let's just fix our ship and go. And then someone would go like, oh, you know, we can't do that. That's heartless. We're potentially leaving all these families to their death. Okay, so we'll take, you know, two of them and uh, take them with us to civilization. I'm going to give up my spot. There's yeah. no way I'm getting away with this giant haunch and it takes up the space of two people. <laughs> so I will nobly sacrifice myself and my giant haunch. It's awfully noble of haunch. Um, so then, then, you know, do we take uh, a couple of people with us and they can alert whoever we encounter to the fact that this planet is in dire straits. Well, you know, we could do that, but if we do that, maybe they won't be able to make it back in time. Maybe the rest of the families will die and the planet will get sucked into the black hole before help can get here. And then they were like, okay, well, but we, you know, I guess that's a, an okay plan, but if we can save more people, maybe that's better. And, and 
there was a lot of pushback from uh, like Gale uh, and Song and Chow were definitely going like, no, 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 we can't we can't risk our own safety in the off chance that, you know, we'll be able to come across another ship uh, that'll be able to refuel us and resupply us and fill up our air before it runs out. There's a lot of debate sort of surrounding that idea. Uh, that was the real sort of hitch that uh, that got the players too was this idea of like, you know, we can try to take everybody, but we might just all die as a result. But what if we don't take everybody and then we run into another ship and it turns out that we could have saved everyone but didn't. Uh, that was sort of the catch-22 that really made the players like chew things over and they just don't, didn't know what to do. Then there was a big dust up with the tribe when the tribe found out that the players knew about the other ship and had been sneaking over there and secretly scrapping parts off of it to fix their own ship. And so there was like a big rivalry. They got caught in the axe. They were brought again before the tribal council and it was decided that they were going to be punished for it. They were going to be imprisoned. But sure enough, just as they're about to be imprisoned, there's another planet quake as the planet gets sucked ever further out into deep space by the gravity it's well. Funny. This is this is like just like season four of The Expanse. Oh, wow. Hot damn. I still got to watch The Expanse. Add it to the list. It'll be after Gangs of London. Um, so hard decisions and the players have to make these hard decisions and there is no right answer. No matter what they do, somebody's going to pay for it. Somebody's going to die. And uh, I know that sort of at its core, this was one of the ideas that the Firefly TV show really wanted to deal with. And uh, I've mentioned it before, just the idea that like getting out alive is a victory in this setting. It's not, you're not always going to win the day. You just want to get out alive. So uh, the, the players are imprisoned and just as they're about to be thrown in their cells, uh, there's another planet quake. And this one seems like a lot more catastrophic than the others. And, you know, create this escalating tension. And it seems like the moment is coming where they're going to have to act, where they're going to have to make their choice and get off the planet. Something that has been going on while these sort of big, heady plot points are taking place is Caesar has been working on repairing the droid that they found, the security droid. And she's having a tough time repairing it because anytime it's powered up, it just goes berserk. It's like it got stuck in that uh, def security defense mode that allowed it to kill all the Reavers with its arsenal of different weapons. So now every time she turns it on, it's just like exterminate, exterminate, and it's ready to kill everybody around it. So she's been working on fixing it so that she can turn it on without it doing using its security protocols and going berserk. And she finally succeeds after do, you know, working on repairs for X number of days. And what she finds out is she finds out the real score 
that they have inadvertently plundered. You know, they manage to to find like a stash of credits, but it's not a lot. And considering that like that shipwreck was supposed to have some legendary treasure, it was a big letdown. But it turns out that this android, which was also the personal assistant of the Tong like ranking general who owned that ship, it knows the real location of this legendary treasure. And it's it's funny because uh, this will tie into, I uh, can't remember which, it might have been Mpox Finest, it might have been Alsace's, but uh, just for fun, I wanted like a legendary Tong sort of war hero figure, and I named him Shan Yu. <laughs> um, so Shan Yu's treasure, the location of Shan Yu's treasure, is hidden in this security droid, and uh, it's buried beneath a statue of Buddha on a planet near the core uh, called Sinhan. And Sinhan uh, has a big Buddhist temple there, and underneath one of the statues, supposedly, is this legendary treasure. So the players have sort of, they've come away from this disaster with an, uh, an actual direction to head in, and I wanted sort of the next phase for their story to be a real like Indiana Jones style treasure hunt. And so now they've got sort of the next, the next thing that they want to do once they are back to safety. Ultimately, they decide that they are going to uh, bring two people with them and you know maybe those two people can send help back but they they don't want to risk running out of air or supplies before they get back to civilization and when the big planet quake hits uh this decision becomes a lot easier for them because like things are going tits up uh the ground is cracking beneath their feet people start rushing towards their ship and the only two that get on are swan and the young woman who showed them where the ship was in the first place. Nellie. Swan and Nellie. Um, so they take Swan and Nellie with them. Swan and Nellie get on the ship. Pandemonium is ensuing. And they decide, like, okay, we've got a couple people here. Maybe they can send back help. But we need to get off this planet. And they book it. And this is a case where... None of the players came away feeling triumphant. I, I succeeded in my goal, where I wanted them to make a hard decision, and they made a hard decision, and they, they got away with, the, with their lives, but they really didn't feel like they had done anything heroic. And uh, so that session ended with them flying away, and as they're flying away from the planet, they finally see the full magnitude of what is going on, and they can see chunks of the planet are starting to tear off uh, on the opposite side of the planet from where the colony was, and they're disappearing into a black hole. So, you know, maybe maybe the, the fate of the colony is already sealed, but regardless, this is the last time they see it as they fly away. And I guess, what, does Haunch stay behind? <laughs> Oh, shoot, I was muted. I said, good boy, and then you happened to say...
Did start hot stay behind, and then I thought you were hearing me, and then I was like, "Yeah, Horn stayed behind." Horn stayed behind. <laughs> Goodbye. Wow, that's the end of Haunch. <laughs> I figure the campaign isn't even going on that much longer, so. Hey, I mean it, it, that's true. That's true, um, and you can see where it's going now. The we're we're doing an Indiana Jones treasure hunt. For the last little bits and uh yeah i think something like five five more sessions of this and then the verse will wrap up so did they ever check up on the planet again or did it get destroyed behind them uh they didn't see it get destroyed but canonically it is gone they, they saved two people and their own skins and made it made it off the planet with enough supplies to get back to civilization without dying. And canonically, Haunch is executed. <laughs> Haunch is gone. And uh, oh, I will say too, I also made the point of noting to the players that they didn't encounter any other ships on their way back to the core. So they did make the, the right call. They would have run out of air before they made it to safety. Yeah, season four of. Uh... The Expanse has uh, two different groups and they argue over which one's ship they should be focusing on and uh, then things keep happening that keep disrupting the thing. I think it's Quakes or it's Big Sandstorms. Can't remember. Anyway. Hey, I mean, it's a it's a good setup. I remember this being a really rewarding session where the players had to make those tough decisions and just like a lot of ongoing debates. Um, it was, it was a really interesting one, but then also that like Pyrrhic victory at the end where, yeah, they survived. They saved a couple of people, but many more will die. Not if Haunch saves the planet. All right. I got Operation Mercy Cicades. It's a quick one. Last time we were at Black Tongue Springs at a little Wormwitch Kobold wagon stop. I uh, didn't mention, but um, the players, they, uh, they, I remember they, they kitted out their team with uh, a certain number. I think they had four horses and two wagons, if I'm uh, remembering that correctly. And uh, they, they even named their horses. I don't remember the names of the horses, of all the horses right off the top of my head, but um following up from last episode so they they take their long rest at the wagon stop in the morning the dwarf caravan departs from the wagon stop for south haven as the one they matched uh coyote's cousin with the one guard and uh then they chart their course from black tongue springs to ash river and uh along the way they ran into a cave encounter with some bloody panda bugbears some uh these are some bloody panda bugbears that have been rumored uh, some bandits that had been rumored to be in the area. And so this was their first real like main quest assignment was that on their way to Ash River, they had to uh, stop and uh, deal with this little bugbear bandit uh, group, which consisted of just four bandits, and they had a caged black bear in their little cave lair. Um, so that was a sort of thing where it's like, you could open the cage with a certain check or the uh, 
bear could like break free during the combat that sort of thing and then uh there was a little payout each of them got 40 gold after dealing with those uh bloody panda bugbears but that was just like a very basic encounter four bandits a bear uh the bear doesn't necessarily start in the combat that sort of thing after that continuing to ash river we got a random event uh so one of the horses i know was named bartlett and uh, Bartlett got sick with Virus 33, which I had talked about before is the, uh, is the uh, biological weapon that the Nightside Eclipse had created to launch their attack on Goblin Town back in the finale of the first campaign, Empok's Finest. But this is also where I'll get to talk about something, which is, uh, I mentioned Connor is a life cleric of Paylor. And this is where the benefits of having a life cleric on the caravan really started to come through because uh, he was very, like, he had all the magic you could want for, like, healing people and uh, fixing sickness and disease and everything. So he also, uh, Connor was sort of like the animal guy in the caravan. He had the animal ken, uh, or the animal, you know, whatever ability. And so he was the one who, like, named the the horses and whatnot and uh he like took care of the animals and stuff so the horse got sick but uh connor was able to tend to it very quickly fairly uh swiftly uh then continuing towards ash river they stopped by at a golden dolphin location the golden dolphin being a uh a seafood uh chain that's uh (laughs) throughout drail and uh, chain i love that then after stopping at the golden dolphin well and of course the deathlands like the part of the deathlands they're in is basically sandwiched between two big coastal settlements and so it's a uh, it's prime uh, real estate for the golden dolphin to open up a location between those um but uh then after they left the golden dolphin as they were traveling by night I had mentioned that they were being stalked by a tiefling hunter, this uh, hunter who had a pet grizzly bear who had been sort of quietly following the caravan and hunting them. And uh, I had that hunter and his uh, bear catch up with them, uh, come after them in the night after that golden dolphin thing. And uh, it was a TPK, you know? I looked at this as being like, uh, all right, the, first, the last episode, you know, the only big combat encounter was they ran into that cannibal chef, Jez. They took him out. And I mean, apart from the little bandit encounter with the bugbears earlier, it was basically like Operation 1, they fight one guy. Operation 2, they'll fight two guys. One of the guys will be Grizzly Bear. Um, But the Grizzly Bear and that hunter just like uh, took out the whole party, man. Wait. total party kill yeah uh i know that part of it was like hexakila had been trying different combat maneuvers um but really i think he should have been like putting in the damage you know i think what they needed to do was like putting in the hits to take out one of these two opponents but in the end it's just like you know they're up against a grizzly bear and uh like this tiefling who's got like a spear and uh, the tiefling and the grizzly bear just took him out. I'll tell you, it's a good thing that they had Ara Stormblast Kendor in the caravan, 
Because uh, when things started turning bad, they were like, oh, shit, guys, we need help. We need help. And they start calling for help from the caravan. And uh, then, luckily, we have one of the heroes from the previous campaign, Aura Stormblast <laughs> Kendor, level 20 cleric. He just rolls up, fucking takes out these this tiefling and the bear. He, you know, heals up the party, resurrects them if need be. Um did well, any I'll tell of you, the we... characters actually die and then like were rezzed by our Stormblast Kendor? It's possible that Hexakila died and was resurrected because I know that Hexakila has died at least once. Um, but how, yeah, it was a real... How did your players react? Man, it was a bummer, man. I think it wasn't just the players. It was a bummer for all of us. It was like, Dangus, Mangus. I, uh... I remember, I like, I, I have a note here that just says bad feels. Man, I was, like, I was feeling pretty down on the campaign at this point. Like, apart from getting to do my whole oh, thing, man. I was feeling bad because, on the one hand, I mentioned how I had planned for my friend Chantel to join this game with that character, Gent. And then when we started, it turned out she wasn't able to. So that was a bummer. And so we, we start playing anyway, and we got these three characters, and we do one session and it's fine and then we do the next session the second session they get tpk'd by an encounter that i didn't even think was that hard again it's like i had one guy in the first one and then i look at the notes for the second one it's like yeah i had two guys that's not that much of an escalation especially considering there's three of them uh i was it just like bad bad rolls like what went wrong well, there was that, but I, I also, like, like I said, I think that Hexakila tried to do sort of combat maneuvers where he tried to, like, get advantage, where he should have been using his action to do damage. I think it would have been uh, okay. more effective yeah. to take out one of the two. Too, um, much, too much flair, not enough actual fighting. But, you know, the the other thing is that just, like, between this and there were some other things that went wrong that we'll get to, but like I just started getting this feeling like maybe this game like it got in my head that this game might be cursed. That like oh, no. I had plans I, I had plans and they just all went downhill and then I start playing it and it just it starts going wrong and I was like, This hasn't happened to me before. Dangus Mangus. And we'll see how that goes. I mean, obviously I kept playing either way because I'm still running coyotes ages but uh yeah that was how the second session went damn wow yeah that was a quick one they didn't even get to their final destination because well in a way that, they did that if was they such all a died. thing that was that was such a thing that i was like well i guess we'll break here it's a bummer Man. wow but it it did continue yeah and more things went wrong more things went wrong for me to think that it was cursed Wow, okay. This is the beginning. Well, that is intriguing. I'm very curious. It's like I to say, I know that Hexakila died at least once. Man. Interesting. My my players really rarely die. It's it's funny, you know, I'm I'm thinking about uh my players rarely die. It has happened. And I'm thinking about this particular instance where one of the reasons I asked about like how everybody reacted was because ages ago, uh, probably like a full 20 years ago now, I was running a D20 modern campaign 
Uh, I don't have the notes for it. Otherwise, I would have talked about it on this show. But uh, my friend Mike Townsend, uh, who played Dietrich Abendroth, he was playing a character in this campaign who was really reckless. He was very, like, anarchic and chaotic. And at one point, uh, he was... Players were in this big car chase, like, speeding down a highway. And we were hitting the point where we'd have to break. And I had this, this sort of wild idea of where the next session would wind up where all the players wake up and they're in a prison hospital because they've committed this crime and then they're, they're doing this car chase. And so uh, to cap off the session, I had a car T-bone, the car that Mike's character was driving the the car was t-boned and then i said your car flips it goes end over end down the highway and at some point during the this huge car wreck that it, that the collision causes you see you know you see the ground coming up in front of the windshield and you black out and that's the end of the adventure and i remember mike just like he was on the edge of his seat and when it seemed like his character might have died or something bad happened, I remember that his reaction was, he was like, okay, but this is a scripted event, right? This is scripted. There's nothing I could have done to prevent that. This is like something you had planned. <laughs> like, I remember him really like scrambling to be like, okay, but am I dead? I'm not dead, am I? And like panicking as a result. So uh, when you were like, yeah, the, the whole party died, I immediately thought of the party being like, wait, did, did we really? Are we really dead? Oh my God, what happens now? And it's funny because I think like I I like I say I kind of I was kind of down on myself for it because you know part of it was I was like well they they the party got wiped out in the second session like I feel like that should have some sort of finality to it but at the same time I had this whole pretense of the caravan and it was like well there is a level 20 care like a level 20 cleric with the caravan like It'd be weird if they all just got like killed by this hunter and and then like, the caravan the is the like caravan oh I'll just leave kept them. going <laughs> like oh uh, they the people running the caravan haven't showed up again well let's go on our way like that would be very bizarre um, so like there I don't know I kind of grappled with myself with the issue of like you know do I make the uh, consequences of this count for something. Um, or do I keep the, like, because everyone's just made their characters and stuff. Do I want to keep going with the game we just started or do I want to like start over again right away? Um, and how to handle that. And like, again, I think like, uh, in the end, what I settled on was like the people in the caravan should count towards this. But at the same time, I was like, it felt bad to, have the party get wiped out and then be like, well, then I, I like, even though I had aura resurrect them, I was like, but they did get wiped out though. I feel like I kind of just gave them a free pass there. I don't know. I agree with you that second session is far too early for the party to get wiped out. And were I in your position, I probably would have done the same thing where have, you know, like they get a freebie, they get a free life. Uh, but 
you know, it's you, funny because use this it is a to, to hammer home just how severe the consequences can be, I guess. Well, it's just like, I don't know if, if you start pulling punches, then when like that, like at what point does it start to feel like the characters actually can't die? So you know? I, I was about to fire that question at you, which is like, how many freebies do you give your party? And a follow-up question, too, is uh, what is the soonest that you would consider it appropriate to allow a character death? Because, you know, I, as I said, I agree. Second session, that's way too soon. Like, it, it practically takes a whole session for players to build their characters. So if they spend one-third of a campaign making their characters, one-third playing, and then on the, the third, third, they die, it just that's not satisfying at all. But what, like, what would you say? Session five, they got to last five sessions, and then, then the the training wheels come off. I don't know, man. It, it's it's weird. It's like so. The thing is, what I also want to say is that I find that this is a very, um, this is a very five e question because I find that people, I, I have more than once seen someone get one shotted in their first session of five e. Um, there was a real trap for this in Lost Minds of Fandelver, where the sort of bugbear, the first like bugbear boss fight that you have, the bugbear has a like morning star that it doubles the damage on. So it's like 2d8 plus something. And with the rules of like, if you go in a negative, you're full HP and you're level one, like if someone's like a, wizard or something and they get hit by that morning star they can easily get just like insta killed and under very similar circumstances i played in a game where in our first like quest we went to fight some kuo toa and there was one with like a great club and it hit this thrycrane ranger we had and the thrycrane ranger just died like not just went down but died in the first like quest we did and i remember that character like that player had really been like planning that character for a long time Ugh. and that was like really like like it was you that guy was in a, that guy was upset and you know again it was a situation where recognizing that the dm who was actually spencer the guy who played chessy in the last campaign he you know, we had a character who was basically a vampire. And so we let, he let us do a thing where the vampire character like made the ranger who died part vampire. And that like allowed them to continue with a sort of extra plot twist um, where they had this sort of like vampiric like heritage to deal with now. It's a solid solution. Um, yeah. And, and that does go towards, what I think is the answer is it's like, it's not even for me, I think, because again, I've also, like, I played in a game of 4E where I created a goblin character that did get straight up killed in the second session that I played. And, like, the thing is, I was okay with that. Like, I was kind of, like, really astonished by that in a positive way because i was like holy shit yeah that's like man this goblin he really got iced in the second session like 
and now I'm just going to roll a new character and that's going to be my character. And so I think like part of it is like, you know, it depends on the character and the player, like their willingness to go through with that. Um, but then also what I was going to say is I think a lot of it is sort of like, can you swing it narratively? I think that I would still be, have pretty negative feelings about this TPK that I'm describing if there hadn't been the explanation that like they had a cleric traveling with their caravan. Um, and the fact that there is that explanation for them surviving sort of makes up for it. But then later there are other things where I come up with other solutions to what's going on. Um, because as I mentioned, uh, things continue to go wrong for this party. Um, but yeah, so, so I don't, I don't know that there is a solid, like, session or whatever that i could say but i think there's definitely there is a there is a diff there are different levels at which people invest in their characters i try to be a kind of person who would accept that their character died um regardless of the circumstances i feel like that's an important part of dungeons and dragons but at the same time i've got this huge queue of characters and part of me feels like, you know, would I really get part way through running one of those characters and have them die and just accept that? Or would I want to finish running that character that I had in the queue for the sake of like experiencing every level of that? And like that gets into whole other things. It's like, you know, with with my trash can Anne in, in Ashes Against the Grain, you know, I've I've only played like a session every few levels. And is there a part of me that actually wants to run Trash Can Anne from levels 1 to 20 in, like, a full campaign? Kind of. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I wouldn't like, be surprised. Because, like, you know, there's all those levels of being a rogue that I didn't play, that I didn't experience. <laughs> so it's tough. I don't know. Maybe the solution there is, like, if I want to do a certain type of character build, then if one character dies with that build, then I make a new character with that build. But they're, like, you know, different in some way. Uh, Probably just change gender. It's like that, uh, that gag from the end of the movie Beer Fest. It's the twin? Yeah, where his twin shows up. <laughs> so, See, I that, I, that's what I, that's what I want to brother. avoid. Oh, and what was his nickname? His nickname... His character had some nickname or it was like Roadblock or something. And his twin brother shows up and says, Ah, oh, you can just call me Roadblock. <laughs> it's yeah, no big yeah. deal. <laughs> like, just fully replace him. Yeah, I just, um, like, that That would irk me. I wouldn't want to do that. I'd want to have some, like, significant difference in the character. I'd, I'd probably laugh at it and let the, the player do it once. <laughs> now... We've gone for a while now. Again, I guess it's kind of a month wrap-up thing. Yeah. Do we want to continue to the tavern or what? Well, I'd really love to talk about this thing that I've brought to the tavern. Uh, it's not going to go very long, but this is some qual right. quality RPG news. Hit us with it. D20 Modern is back, and it's getting a 5e update. Man, I mean, this is this is pretty exciting for me. You know how I've I've talked 
many times in the past about what I liked about the D20 modern system, where it's like this stripped-down version of D&D that allows for, for greater potential in, in more diverse settings and more diverse characters. And uh, they're bringing it back in a new form. So I'm just going to read a couple of selections from this article that's on Polygon. <clears throat> and uh, the title is, Everyday Heroes Uses the Rules of D&D to Roll Up Rambo, Highlander, uh, The Crow, and more. So back in 2002, D20 Modern helped breathe life into 3rd edition D&D, expanding the tabletop role-playing game into a more contemporary setting. Less swords and sorcery, more ninjas and automatic weapons. A new game, yeah. a new game based on the open source version of the fifth edition D and D rule set, will go a step further. With the help of D Twenty Modern's co-creator Jeff Grubb, everyday heroes will let players step into the shoes of classic action movie heroes. Uh, soon, you'll be able to get your ass to Mars as Douglas Quaid. Rescue prisoners of war with John Rambo, or stride your Jaeger into battle against towering kaiju. Where the original D20 Modern merely offered generic action archetypes, Everyday Heroes is also bringing in famous licensed characters and settings, including Highlander, Escape from New York, Universal Soldier, Rambo, Total Recall, The Crow, Pacific Rim, and more. Um, Man, this is some this is some Palladium level shit. Yeah, they're, they're going pretty crazy with it, but it is still based off of the D20 Modern idea. So um, they are, and more announcements are, gonna, are coming apparently, where they're just, they're getting the rights to all these licensed characters to include. They're sort of making an official document that's like that article I read in the Tavern a while back where, you know, making Neo in D&D. Well, now you can probably literally make Neo. Well, this is... This is what heroes. I'm saying is like Palladium was full of things like this. Like people had made all these different books of popular characters for uh, riffs and whatnot. And you could find them all over the internet. But like, yeah, man, I hope they get the rights to Predator for D20 Modern. That'd be cool. Um, so or Xenomorph. Lead designer Siegfried Trent says the theme, the setting, the mood, the feeling of D20 Modern and then the rules, the simplicity, and the modularity of 5e. Merge those things together, and you get everyday heroes. Um, and now uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the cool mechanics here, because there are some things that are, are different from D&D. Uh, for example, in a gunfight, the mechanical design of everyday heroes aims to keep players focused on cinematic action. Uh, Movement will play a huge role in how hard players are to hit. Everyday heroes' cover mechanics mean that the equivalent of a player's armor class will be determined in part by what they're standing or crouching behind. So I guess they really are just sort of like the cover rules from D&D. But uh, what they want to do here, uh, here's a quote from that guy, Siegfried Trent. You don't see John McClane running around in body armor all the time. We wanted a system that had some realism to it. If you're running a scenario and you have armor on, you want it to do what it's supposed to in the real world. Stop a bullet or deflect a sword if it's a more traditional kind of armor. So what we did is we made up a system where if you're going good in combat, you don't necessarily need your armor. The armor is more of a failsafe. 
If a player's hit points go to zero, they can make an armor saving throw, and then the type and quality of the armor they're wearing and the kind of damage they're being dealt will influence how hard or easy that save is. I, the thing I note there is the type of damage being dealt. Um, immediately my mind went to, you mean, is it like SDC or MDC? <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not the armor, uh, the armor helps. When you go to the movies, (laughs) when you go to the movies, people spend a lot of time dialoguing while in cover. Uh, That's where the romance in the story happens. That way you're not just standing there shooting at each other. It's so interesting and so strategic about how you're hunting for cover and you're strategically using every single step in order to maximize it. And it's different than a game like D&D in that respect. Stakes are also customizable. Game masters will be able to make the call if that final blow means a player needs to roll up a new character or if they're just knocked out. So look at that. They're even addressing what we were just talking about, where there is apparently going to be a mechanic where if a player gets knocked down to zero, the DM can can just sort of decide based on the rules of the game if that actually means that they're dead or just out cold. I mean, we already got a system for that. It's if you go into negative your health, then you're dead. Well, and then the death saves as well, right? Yeah, that too. Um, I think it's just an instant death if you go into negative your health, but death yeah. saves happen if you go down. Um, so uh, here's just a quick word on characters. Supplementing the core rulebook will be what uh, Evil Genius Games calls cinematic adventures. Each will focus on an action movie or well-known franchise. Eight 100-page supplements will be available at launch, available individually or as a bundle. Half of the cinematic adventures will be dedicated to game mechanics designed for use in home campaigns. The other half will feature an adventure inspired by a film that puts characters into the shoes of well-known Hollywood heroes. So, you know, maybe there's going to be an Alien vs. Predator module. Most players, however, will opt to create their own characters from scratch and hear everyday heroes... Or John Wick, where the bad guys take your dog. Yeah, it could be John Wick. Um, making your own character is where everyday heroes hews very close to D20 Modern. The core game provides rules and subclasses for uh, character archetypes based off of the stats. So strong hero, fast hero, tough hero, smart hero. Oh, it's the return of Haunch Darling. That's right. He's Charming made it heroes. off of... He's made it off of Jigong. <laughs> oh man, he made it off. Um, each type will have its own way of interacting with the world through skills and feats. Uh, one of the game designers, Grub, says he's most excited about smart heroes who will have a unique ability to impact the narrative using genius points. Now, I think this is a really interesting one. Uh, genius points allow smart heroes to retroactively alter the narrative, improvising on the spot how and why their superior superior intelligence is able to save the day. A system not unlike the critically acclaimed supernatural heist game Blades in the Dark, but balanced more for 5e rules. And here's an example of how this works. Uh, a big example would be knowing the layout of a building. The player isn't sure how to get in, or they don't know how many guards there are, or they don't know what floor the thing they're looking for is on. The genius character uses their their ability, their class ability, and goes, oh, I know, I looked up the blueprints for this building last night. Or maybe they're just so smart they know how buildings are built and where different rooms would be. They know how people reposition their guards. They just know so much about that subject that they can predict those things. So 
I find that interesting. The it's sort of like a, a mechanic that they've made that fills in the blanks of something that I kind of already do, right? Like if a player was like, do I know the layout of this building? And I made them roll an intelligence check and they passed. I, as the GM or DM, would probably just say like, yeah, you looked this up in advance. But I think it's kind of neat that uh, they've created this system or this mechanic where the player can do that, where they go, I'm going to spend, you know, X genius points and say, I looked looked this up in advance. Um, then the article just goes on to talk about the sort of renaissance of tabletop role-playing games lately, uh, D&D, you know, acquired by Hasbro as well, but there's Spelljammer coming back. There's a new Dragonlance adventure later this year, apparently. So, uh, RPGs, tabletop RPGs are definitely having a moment. And I was kind of delighted to see, hey, there's going to be a new, a new edition, essentially a new edition of D20 Modern. Even if it is not D20 Modern, you know, 2.0, it is very clearly taking the 5e rule set and uh, changing it in such a way to incorporate all those D20 Modern mechanics and classes and such. It's the perfect thing for this podcast, the marriage of D20 Modern and 5e. Yeah, man. It's back, baby. Can't wait. Well, that's very exciting, McGill, but I really got to go to the bathroom. So I think we're going to wrap this episode up. If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes and follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Or if you want to see our supplemental materials, maps, uh, pictures of my notes from my notebook, the dang old grizzly bear that took out the party and everything else, Check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Anything else, McGill? Level up your character. Not me. Take care, everybody. buddy.